Today, we're gonna to be talking about what makes something right and what makes something wrong. In other words, we're gonna be talking about morality. And before we do that though, we need to do a little bit of review from week one and two and actually see that we've laid the foundation for some of the discussion today. In week one, we talked about the Christian claim that God is triune. Christianity teaches that there is one God, but that one God is eternally three persons. We established that the doctrine of the Trinity enables us to say that God is love. We say this because before God spoke anything into existence, before the foundations of the earth were laid, the Father has always loved the Son, the Son has always loved the Father, and the Father and Son have always loved the Spirit, and the Spirit has always loved the Father and the Son. Now, this is really good news because it says two things. One, at the center of reality, at the center of all things, there exists a being that is pure, unadulterated, uncompromised love. And it also says that God's love is not contingent upon us or anything for that matter. God's love is contingent upon his own unchanging nature. Now, again, nature is an important word for us as we go through this series. What I mean by nature is essential characteristics and attributes. So fire by nature is hot. God by nature is triune. And the Father has always loved the Son, the Son, the Father, the Spirit to the Father and the Son. Now, what's fascinating at this, this point is a question. Why is it in Christianity that the central ethic is love? I mean, what is the greatest commandment? What is the second greatest commandment? What does Paul say uh, on, teaches us how to fulfill the whole law? And again and again and again, you will see the answer to those questions being love, loving God and loving others. And see, at this point, there is a logical connection. That command, that ethic to love, that central claim in Christianity is not arbitrary or made up. The logical connection is God commanding his creatures to love because he by nature is love and then tells his image bearers, human beings, to be loving as well. Now, there is a massive problem that arises though. What does it actually look like to be loving? I mean, it's one thing to try and imagine an eternal triune being being love, but what does it actually look like in practice for human beings to love like God loves? And to that, we turn to week two, the incarnation. Now, there is a world of difference between God and humanity. But in the incarnation... Jesus bridges the gap. Jesus is God and humanity so that there are two natures in one person. Jesus is God. Jesus takes upon humanity and that is the two natures existing in the one person. God is love and he wants his people to demonstrate love like he does. Again though, the question is, what does that love look like in human form? And because of the incarnation, Jesus comes and takes upon humanity and then perfectly demonstrates what that ought to look like. 
Jesus gives love a face. He gives it human flesh. And so if we want to see what love looks like in human form, you look to the life of Jesus. And what exactly do we encounter? What do we see? We encounter a massive problem. Let me explain. We often tell ourselves things that we like to believe, like we're generally good, compassionate, caring, loving people. But a lot of, a lot of the, the good that we end up doing, we do so because there's a societal reward for it. Let me give you an example. So what do you do when you see this symbol while you are driving? Now, some of you, you see the stop sign and you sort of do this slow roll. Like you don't come to a complete stop, but you slow down just enough to sort of look around and make sure no other cars are coming. But let's say there was a police officer at that corner. Then when you see that stop sign, oh man, you come to a stop. You kind of do a count like one, two, three. Now, why is that? It's because you actually deep down don't want to stop for the stop sign. You're not deep down concerned about the safety of others at that corner. But all of a sudden, when there's a legal consequence or a way you can get in trouble, man, you make sure that you slow that car down and come to a complete stop. You behave because there's a consequence upon you if you don't. This is why something like gossip can run rampant because there's no legal consequence on top of that. Now, there's an additional problem. Many times, we only love people who we deem lovable. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 46 through 48, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. In other words, Loving people that you think are lovable is easy and anybody could do that. Jesus type love must go further than that. It must go beyond that. There's another problem is that when we look at how Jesus expressed love and how he taught us, the things he teaches us are things we wouldn't want to do. We don't want to love like that. Jesus says to love your enemies. Who wants to do that? Jesus says, if somebody strikes you, turn the other cheek. Who wants to do that? Jesus says, pray for those who persecute you. Bless them. Who wants to do that? And so we find that loving like Jesus did is actually incredibly difficult. Another question arises at this point, however. It's like, why should we try to live and love like Jesus did? I mean, isn't morality subjective? Can't we just choose our own rights and choose our own wrongs? I mean, some people like chocolate ice cream. Some people like vanilla ice cream. This person thinks this is wrong. This person thinks that is right. What's the big deal? Why should I allow Jesus to tell me how I ought to live? Why should I try to live and love as he did? We live in strange times. Our culture simultaneously wants to decide right and wrong based on their own eyes, but also feels extremely passionate about what they believe is right or wrong. I mean, just bring up any hot button issue and by the end of the, the discussion, you're likely to be called some name or pejorative. See, it's at this point that we are terribly inconsistent. We want to say what we think is right or wrong, and we may feel passionate about it, but at the end of the day, we also want to believe that we just get to decide what's right and wrong based on our own opinions and preferences. And if there is no ground for morality, who are you to tell me that I'm wrong? 
So what makes something right and what makes something wrong? In other words, what is the foundation for morality? Some people would say that it's the state. So if the state says something is wrong, that makes it wrong. Stealing is wrong because there's laws against stealing and there's legal consequence if you do so. And at first that may sound like a good idea, but there's, there's some problems with it. Take for example, how certain laws are in some places and not in others. So you might be in a place where it's illegal to jaywalk. Then you go to a different state that has different laws and jaywalking is permissible. So it's like, does the ethic of jaywalking change upon location? Even worse than that, we know that laws in the state change. They change all the time. They're being updated, they're being altered. So again, that doesn't give you like a solid foundation to stand upon. And that's kind of easy when it's a simple thing like jaywalking, but let's turn it up a notch. What happens when it's something that actually matters, that has real implications? So what happens when the state tells you to turn in your neighbor because of their ethnicity? What happens if the state makes something like that law? Does all of a sudden that become the right thing to do? We know deep down that if it was wrong to turn someone in, even if the state demanded it, it wouldn't magically make it right. There's some greater ethical or moral foundation that we know exists. So the state can't be the right answer. Some people would say that culture is the foundation for morality. This is the thought that the collective, the collective wisdom of the majority determines what's right and what's wrong. But again, we run into problems with that. What happens if the whole culture becomes corrupt? And we see this historically, right? Like, let's take the example from the state. What happens if you're a person in the World War II era and the state says, you have to turn in Jews that you are hiding in your house? Even more so than that, what if everyone else in the nation said that was right, the right thing to do? What if the whole world said that was the right thing to do? You know, deep down, that there's still some higher law that would make that wrong. So culture can't be the answer. And there's other subsets of these. Take, for example, you might think that your values come from your family. And yes, your values might come from your family, but your family teaching you those values of right and wrong, it doesn't make it true or false any more than if your family told you fairy tales are true. There has to be some foundation for morality that is unchanging. It can't be one way today and a different way tomorrow. Now, Christians have historically claimed that God is the foundation for morality. He is unchanging. Therefore, there is an objective standard, an objective foundation for one to stand upon. In other words, if moral laws actually exist, then there must be a moral law giver. See, in our culture, we've been given the message that we are nothing more than products of random chance. We are nothing more than neurons and hormones and atoms. There's nothing beyond this life. There's no heaven. There's no hell. There's nothing transcendent above us. If there is no God, nothing transcendent, nothing above us to ground us, our feet wander aimlessly without meaning on a planet that wanders aimlessly without meaning. We are here for a fleeting moment and then we die. We want to believe in things like love, but however we may conceive of it, if there is not a loving being at the center of it all, then love does not exist. Love is just chemicals and hormones firing off in our body to create a social contract between two individuals so that they may propagate the herd. Truth, 
honor, dignity. Those are just terms we use to describe animal-like behavior that benefits the tribe. We may assign meaning to all sorts of things in our lives, but make no mistake, they are not grounded in anything real. Right and wrong disappear. So here is the good news. There is something beyond us. When we see terrible, horrific evil, deep down we know it's wrong and we long for there to be a judge who makes things right. C.S. Lewis, on reflecting on his idea and complaint about God before becoming a Christian, said this, My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got the idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? When wrong is done to another human being, it's wrong because that human being has rights. And where do those rights come from? Not from culture or the majority or the state. Rights are established because human beings are made in the image of Almighty God. Now, where does this all leave us? With a tremendous opportunity, because right now we have a culture that's extremely passionate about right and wrong. We talked about this earlier. But if you're just deciding right and wrong based upon your own opinions and deciding what's right and wrong in your own eyes, you have no ground, no foundation to stand upon. But it's here that the Christian can enter in and say, actually, our faith does give us a foundation to stand upon. Morality and ethics are built upon the foundation of the unchanging nature of God. That's why murder is wrong and it will always be wrong. Nothing could ever change that because the foundation is laid in the very nature of unchanging almighty God. So we have an opportunity to step in and say, I see that you're passionate about this. Can I show you a foundation for it? I see that you care about the treatment of the poor. Why? Do you have a grounds for that? Let me show you. I see that you care about fairness. What is the foundation for that? See, Jesus comes to earth and not only is God who establishes the foundation, but then he perfectly embodies this morality. He demonstrates what love ought to look like. And he invites us in into a relationship with him to begin that life of love that he demonstrates. And so when we look at morality, we have to understand that the state does not make right, culture doesn't make right, not even your family makes right. What makes right is a holy, unchanging, triune God. Now we turn to one last massive problem. If moral laws exist, what is the lawgiver to do with law breakers. C.S. Lewis stated the problem like this in his lectures during World War II and his book, Mere Christianity. First, human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave in a certain way and cannot really get rid of it. Secondly, they do not in fact behave in that way. They know the law of nature, but they break it. These two facts are the foundation of all clear thinking about ourselves and the universe. And this is where weeks one, two, and three all come together. Before the foundations of the world, God knew that humanity would rebel. And the plan was always to send the son to become a human being. And when Jesus puts on flesh, he perfectly embodies what this love looks like. He embodies it perfectly. 
Now, what happens to the truly innocent one who comes to an imperfect creation? Well, the imperfect creation turns on him. And Jesus is crucified by the very people he came to love and to save. The law giver who obeys the law perfectly is found guilty. All the while, he then turns and looks at the guilty party and declares them not guilty. The plan from the beginning was that God, the Son, Jesus, would become one of us, put on humanity, and die in our place. And where do we go from this point? We are to follow this Jesus and not only love him, but love the imperfect fallen creation. And so we demonstrate what the God looks like, what the love of God looks like in our everyday lives. And we then also turn to a world that cares about right and wrong, but we show them how right and wrong only makes sense with a foundation built upon God.